The Way Out Podcast, episode 368. What is your name? Michael Rebellino. Michael, what was your substance of choice or DOC if you had one? Oxycodone and alcohol. Uh, quite the powerful and dangerous one to punch, yeah? 100%. <laughs> the miracle, I'm still alive, alive today. Uh, miracle is the right word for that, no doubt about it. And so many of us can relate to that experience of feeling like and truly believing the fact that we're still on this earth, no small miracle. Yeah, amen. Michael, what is your clean and or sober date if you keep one? I do, and it is July 8th, 2016. Well, you just celebrated a milestone not that long ago then, huh? I did, yeah, seven years. Congratulations, Michael, on seven years of continuous recovery. That's absolutely tremendous. Yeah, thank you, man. I appreciate it. How do you serve the recovery community, Michael? Um, I think the main way is just trying to share my story um, in any way, shape, or form that I can. All of my friends and family know that I'm in recovery. I'm pretty vocal about it. Um, and that's led to some cool conversations with people in my life. Um, another way is writing my book, which, although shares a fictionalized version of my story, is very much still my story, um, especially in terms of the inner life of the narrator. So yeah, just trying to do as much marketing for that as I can and just get that into as many people's hands as possible. Um, it's actually being incorporated into a treatment uh, center back in my hometown. Um, they're gonna somehow use it as part of their recovery treatment, which is pretty unbelievable to me still, but um, yeah, I mean, super humbling and, and an honor. Um, and yeah, I actually got another book coming out probably early next year. It still has the addiction and recovery storyline, but it deals more with, with mental health. Um, so yeah, I mean, you know, and doing podcasts like this and just different speaking events and yeah, so just really trying to share my story in any way, any way that I can, trying to give away what I've been so freely given. Michael, one of the most powerful ways I experience recovery is through the power of other people's stories. Mm. That, in the beginning for me, was what told me that there was hope, that recovery just might be possible for me because other people shared their stories. And for the first time in my life, I was listening to people who drank like I drank, used like I used, felt like I felt, thought like I thought, and they got better. Mm-hmm. And for the first time in my life, I thought maybe just maybe I can get better too. And I started to do the things that they said that they did in order to get better. And there's just so much medicine, hope, and healing in our stories. 
That's why I'm so passionate about sharing other people's recovery stories on this podcast. Because when we recover out loud, we're affording that opportunity to countless others. And it can be on a podcast. It can be in a work setting. It can be in a family setting. I, too, choose to integrate recovery as a core part of my identity. Mm -hmm. And I choose to recover out loud. And I've been afforded many, oh, opportunity to be able to help somebody. And I don't get to choose. That's the magic about this thing, right? Like, I don't get to choose who it moves, who it helps, who wants to approach me for more, uh, who wants to potentially share some things about themselves that they're struggling with. I don't get to choose that. I'm just responsible in my mind for, you know, recovering out loud and being the best example of recovery I can be on a daily basis. And if I'm doing that, you know, there's a chance that somebody might want that too. Yeah, I love that. <clears throat> and as as awesome as it is to hear feedback from people or, you know, have somebody tell you that your story helped them. Um, yeah, like you said, we don't always get to know what the results are, but it's pretty cool to, to just do our part and sit back and relax and trust God with the results and um, you know even if it just helps one other person I think it's worth it no question no question it's worth it and that's very much our mindset helping one person at a time Mm -hmm. writing your book clean the misadventures of an alcoholic drug addict is another great way to be able to combine recovering out loud with a format that, you know, can really reach a new and different kind of audience. And so that's really great. Um, and um, tell me just a little bit. We don't want a lot, but just a, just a little bit about clean the misadventures of an alcoholic drug addict. Yeah, so clean um, is a slightly fictionalized version of, of my story. It doesn't spend too much time in the what my life used to be like part, but it spends enough time there to sort of paint the picture and and get the reader up to speed and to make the what happened part make sense. Right. Uh, and it primarily focuses then from that point on on the first year of the narrator's recovery. So yeah, it's a it's a book about addiction and recovery. It's a book about finding hope in a seemingly hopeless situation. Um, it's about how addiction affects not only the person suffering from substance use disorder, but also their family, friends, mm-hmm. ones, just basically everyone in their path. Um, and yeah, it's just I'm trying to make the reader feel what it's like or what it was like for me at least. So I don't spend too much time on external um, circumstances or, you know, things that you might find on someone's resume. So that, you know, back to your earlier point about the power of people's stories. That was one of the coolest things for me early on in recovery, just walking into any meeting or even in rehab 
and just thinking initially, like, I'm not going to have anything in common with any <laughs> of these people. Yeah. I have different backgrounds. I don't look like them. They don't look like me. They're older than me. They're younger than me, whatever it is. And then as soon as they start talking, I'm like, oh, like, you're telling my story. Yeah. And so that's, yeah, anyway, I try to focus on the inner life of the addict. And I ho hopefully that, you know, that resulted in something that's relatable. Um, not only for people in, in recovery or in, in active addiction, but also just the general public. Because I, I would argue that everybody is addicted to something. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so that's clean. I really love, Michael, how you do indeed intentionally choose to focus on what addiction, alcoholism, and then recovery feels like and the emotions and the experience of that from an internal perspective because that is what's relatable sometimes we can relate to external circumstances but a lot of times that varies widely mm -hmm. across folks that experience a substance use disorder and it can be easy to say well i haven't done that i haven't experienced that so I'm probably not an alcoholic, I'm probably not an addict, but oh yeah, I felt like that. Oh yeah, I can relate to that experience from an emotional perspective. And those are the things that, you know, we really tend to connect to and move us and make us feel like I'm not alone. For the first time, maybe, in a very long time, when we yeah. hear somebody share how their addiction or alcoholism made them feel and then you know subsequently in recovery and i think we need to share what it was like i think that's really important but to your point i also think it's important not to pitch a tent there and camp there <laughs> in our stories yeah honestly. you know what i'm saying like yeah Don't we need to here's here's why i qualify right <laughs> and then here's how I got better. <laughs> right? Right? right. That's, that's great. Michael, last question for our intro questions. What does recovery mean to you? Hmm. I think recovery means to me in, in the simplest form just trying to find ways to give away what I've been so freely given each and every day. It, it means a lot of things, but I think if I were to boil it down into one sentence, that would be, that would be it. To give back. To give back, right. It's a powerful way to experience recovery when we really, truly embody that principle of love and service. Mm. And we can take that into the rooms of recovery and out of the rooms of recovery. Right? Right. Yeah, and I don't I don't always do it perfectly. And there are times <laughs> I'm super selfish and would rather not yeah. give up what I've been so freely given. But yeah. 
Man, I try to I try to do it as much as I can just because yeah, I didn't get here on my own and nobody can do it alone. So if I can, like I said, help even just one other person, then it's all worth it. Welcome Way Out Faithful and First Timers to this week's installment of the Way Out Podcast. We appreciate your ears. Our mission is simple to bring you powerful recovery stories and recovery power topics so you can jumpstart or re-energize your recovery from alcoholism and addiction. The Way Out Podcast does not speak on behalf of, nor are we affiliated with any 12-step organization. The Way Out Podcast is a proud supporter of Transitions Daily. Would you like to join a free, anonymous, online group that offers a daily topic email with popular recovery resources accompanied by a secret Facebook group for discussion? Go to dailyaaemails.com for more information about Transitions Daily. Don't forget to share dailyaaemails.com with friends, in meetings, and with sponsees in recovery. Make sure to check us out on the web at www.wayoutcast.com. There you can subscribe to ensure you get the latest episodes first on iTunes, iHeartRadio, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Help us recover out loud by giving us a five-star rating and review on your favorite podcast app. Your voice matters, so share your thoughts on recovery with us by calling us at 218-382-1960 or leaving a message with us on the Anchor app, available for Android and Apple. Someone, somewhere, needs to hear your share. Listen up, everyone. Certified and professional recovery coaching is now available by going to wayoutcast.com and then clicking on Recovery Coaching. We want to help you and those you know who want help in building a strong, rewarding, and enduring recovery. Let our recovery experience and training enhance and strengthen your recovery by visiting wayoutcast.com and then clicking on Recovery Coaching. Finally, a word of caution, this podcast may contain strong language and mature content. Listener discretion is advised. The Way Out Podcast is on right now. I'm Charlie, and in this rendition of The Way Out, I'm pleased to bring you my interview with engineer, husband, brother, son, person in long-term recovery, and author of the book Clean, The Misadventures of an Alcoholic Drug Addict, Michael Rebellino. Michael shares his journey to and through recovery to this point with us in humble and honest fashion, and about the aforementioned book he authored, which offers readers insight into the pain and struggle that is addiction and alcoholism, and hope that recovery is not just possible, it's absolutely worth it. Michael's message to readers is this, whoever you are and whatever you're going through, you're not alone. And there is hope. There is always hope. He truly believes if his story helps even just one person see that and believe that, it'll all be worth it. Similarly, this year interview with Michael Rebellino is worth every second of your time. So listen up. Michael Rebellino, 
Thank you so much, brother, for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us here on the Way Out podcast. You are a person in long-term recovery. You're an engineer. You're a husband, a brother, a son. You are also the author of Clean, The Misadventures of an Alcoholic Drug Addict. And you're here with us to share your journey to and through recovery to this point. Before we get into any of that, why don't you take a moment to introduce yourself to the Way Out podcast audience. Tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, and we'll get started. Hey, everyone. Yeah, it's good to be here. Um, like like you said, my name is Michael Rebellino, and I have a little bit over seven years of recovery under my belt. Um, grew up in Canton, Ohio, and I've lived in Cincinnati now for the past nine or ten years. Um, yeah, my, my work experience is, is as a civil engineer, but writing has always been a passion of mine and um, maybe even a calling, I would say. And my first book is called Clean. I got a new book on the way and yeah, just trying to get my story out there. That's fantastic. Tell me, Michael, what growing up in Canton, Ohio was like for you? What was family life like? Tell us a little bit about the food, the family of origin. <laughs> All right. Um, I am the oldest of four kids. My younger siblings are triplets. So, oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. My parents were going for one more after me. <laughs> surprise. <laughs> right. They got that surprise. And uh, pretty sure my dad got a vasectomy before he even left. <laughs> <Austria>. <laughs> uh, oh, that's great. But yeah, so two boys and a girl. Um, so always had people around growing up. Um, my parents ended up getting divorced when I was maybe seven or eight. So we would do a week with my mom, then a week with my dad. They both stayed in the Canton area. Um, and my mom got remarried a few years later, then divorced again. And she's currently remarried again um, and has been for over 10 years now. But yeah, so growing up, we went back and forth and I kind of got used to living out of a suitcase to some extent. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I was super close with my siblings and super active kid, played in the neighborhood all the time, just about any sport you can think of. Um, school always came somewhat naturally to me, and I really liked school growing up. So I, I did well in school, and I was really shy and quiet. So teachers loved me because I didn't say a word, but would sure. do, do well. Didn't cause any trouble. I was really a good kid. Um, and yeah, my, I had a great family, you know, my parents were divorced, but they both loved us and, and really provided a, an excellent upbringing. Um, I was middle class and, you know, Canton's not a huge city, but it's also not like a farming community or anything. Um, and yeah, I had, had a group of friends and, um, you know, went to church and life was good. Um, and then came high school and boredom and um, the beginning of what became, yeah, the start of my life in active addiction. No, I want to 
definitely talk about that, especially high school, because I can intimately relate with that being the beginning of my active alcoholism and addiction as well. But I think it's instructive to highlight that, you know, divorce, of course, can be difficult for kids. So that's something. But by and large, it sounds like a pretty good childhood, parents that loved you, not a lot of turmoil, which to me is important to highlight because we don't have to have huge trauma or even small trauma or troubled childhoods in order to develop a substance use disorder. Yeah. Not a requirement. Not at all. So, and I think often that tends to be a perception that, well, I probably had a troubled childhood and trauma in the upbringing and, you know, it led to substance use, which led to addiction and alcoholism, but it's just not a requirement. It's certainly prevalent, I think, in the substance use disorder community, but it's not a requirement. Right. Yeah, it's an equal opportunity offender. It can can happen to anybody, anywhere, anytime. Across right. all, yep, across all class, race, the whole gamut, right? Yeah, like you yeah. said, yeah, it, it's an equal opportunity disorder. Right. It can happen to anybody, no doubt. Okay, so you get into high school, and you mentioned boredom, and man, like, that's an underrepresented, I think, element of why one tries drinking or other substances. Because you got a lot of time on your hands and you're bored. It is, can be as simple as that. Um, yeah, there could be other factors, obviously, as well. But boredom's real. And if we don't know what to do with it and we don't know what to do with ourselves... Nature abhors a vacuum. And so we find something to fill that time with, right? So, but you were in sports and those other things. So tell me a little bit about how that plays out in high school. Um, yeah, so I was super active and <clears throat> on paper. I mean, I don't know that anyone would have looked at my resume if I had had one at that point and, and suspected that I was going to turn into a drug addict and alcoholic. Um, yeah, I did, got straight A's all through high school. Uh, I was on the soccer team all through high school and, but yeah, you know, the boredom piece uh, definitely played a role. Also, like I mentioned earlier, I was super shy growing up and just always felt some level of social anxiety, uncomfortable in and, um, you know, I don't know if it was because my parents got divorced, but I did have some level of OCD tendencies growing up as well. I mean, sort of the textbook stuff like flicking lights on and off a certain number of times, washing my hands a certain number of sure. times, yeah. all that stuff. So there was definitely a desire to be in control and mm. drinking. So drinking and drugs ended up um, doing a, a number of things for me that I fell in love with almost immediately. They got me out of my, you know, just this super shy and insecure headspace I was in. It allowed me to feel comfortable in my own skin for the first time. Mm. And it seemed to be 
quite the treatment slash almost cure for my OCD <laughs> tendencies, but really it was just another manifestation of me trying to get some form of control over my okay. surroundings. You know, if I could mm-hmm. control food now, then maybe I don't need to wash my hands as many times. So anyway, it was maybe just another manifestation of my OCD tendencies, but, and then, yeah, the boredom, it gave me, it gave me plenty to do because yeah. drinking and drugging can be a full-time job. <laughs> so, yeah. You know, the way that you describe what drugs and alcohol did for you in terms of satisfying that inner need for control and the elixir effect that it has in terms of eliminating that social anxiety and allowing you to feel comfortable in your own skin on command. Mm-hmm. It's a very relatable experience, I think, for most of us who now identify as having a substance use disorder, addiction, alcoholism, certainly for me. Alcohol and drugs did for me what I could not do for myself. Yeah. They eliminated my anxiety, my fear, my depression, and unlocked things in me that prior to that point I couldn't unlock by myself. I could stick up to the guys, I could flirt with the girls, and I could be the life of the party. And I wasn't able to do that without drugs and alcohol. So they were my superpower. And I wanted to do them as often as possible. And (laughs) to your point, Michael, that's a time-consuming affair when you pursue it to the extent that it sounds like you did. Yeah, not to mention trying to hide it from your parents. Right. (laughs) And And you're trying to keep up this straight A student, right? And that that piece, right? So that can be increasingly difficult. Yeah. Athlete. So yeah, I was uh I was busy. I bet. So how does that progress and manifest? Yeah, so started out with alcohol and then shortly thereafter I tried weed for the first time. Didn't really like that. So like any good addict i tried it again and again (laughs) (laughs) until i did like it we're nothing if not persistent (laughs) yeah i was determined that i was gonna like it so yeah that became sort of my my drug of choice for a while and then it was only a matter of time until the the prescription pills started um so that then became my drug of choice and remained my drug of choice for many years and and why what was it about the pills that ended up being the reason it was your drug of choice um just the way it made me feel i don't know how else to describe it but it you know alcohol and and weed sort of scratched the surface but this felt like it just got down deeper somehow and just to your point earlier just unlocked even more than what drug what uh, alcohol and weed were able to do 
Plus, you know, like I said, I was still living at home, like trying to hide this from my parents. A little tiny pill is much easier to hide than alcohol and weed. No smell. You know, it fits right in your pocket. Just pop it and you're done. The way you talk about your drug of choice is the way I hear so many talk about their drug of choice. And that changes from person to person. For me, it was alcohol. But that magic potion that feels like a superpower mm-hmm. and that we convince ourselves that we need to take on a regular basis in order to be okay, right? Right. And yeah, if you had asked me at the time, I would have definitely told you I loved pills more than anything else. But in high school, it was all about just experimentation. Yeah. And- what my friends are doing and it's fun and it's innocent and (laughs) yeah you know we have really funny times and so i was consuming pretty much anything and everything i could get my hands on at the time um yeah but pills were always mine well i think that's instructive too because it can be difficult to detect a substance use disorder addiction, alcoholism in that adolescent phase because a lot of kids are experimenting with drugs and alcohol. But in hindsight, I always drank and used addictively. Mm. From the get-go, it was no mere habit it was indeed the beginning of a fatal progression it just looked more normal alongside other people who were also drinking and experimenting but even then again i was drinking and using quite addictively and quite excessively more than most yeah all right so Pills become the thing. They're easy. You could be discreet with them. They're hitting the old sweet spot. How does this progress and manifest for you um, as you launch yourself into adulthood? Yeah, so I start to have some consequences before I even get out of high school. Start getting caught by my parents. Um, But, you know, addicts are become pretty good liars. And I was no different. So I would say what I needed to say and get get them off my back. So, Michael, were you one of those that were, hey, it's not a problem. It's not a big deal. Were you, were you minimizing or were you more like, yeah, I'm sorry, I won't do this again? Or, you know, how were you trying to um, uh, take the heat off from uh, from the parental perspective? I think it was a little of both. Definitely yeah. minimized it and then, you know, said I wasn't going to do it anymore. And there was a part of me that really didn't want to keep living how I was living, even in high school, before yeah. I would have even called myself an addict or alcoholic. Um, it, but it was always one of those things that was going to happen in the future. Like, okay, after I graduate high school, then I'll stop. Or like, no, well, after, the, after, after I graduate college, that, that's a better time to try to stop. 
And then it's like, oh, well, now I'm at my first job. So maybe when I get another job or maybe when I move or maybe when I get married or whatever it is, it's just I was I was always trying to quit, but it was never today. It was <laughs> some future. Some- <laughs> like, yeah, I know it's an issue. I'm going to deal with it, but not today. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, you know, I started having some consequences before I even got out of high school. Like I said, I got arrested a time or two and, you know, woke up in the hospital, getting my stomach pumped, had no idea how I had gotten there. Um, different things like that. You know, my parents that night got a call in the middle of the night saying that I was unresponsive and being rushed to the ER, which I don't have kids, but I can't even imagine. Oh man. I can't even imagine. Um, but you know, I still thought I could find a way to make this lifestyle work. So off I go to college and I tried to make some changes maybe for a week or two, but then it was just like right back to how I knew how to deal with life at that point. Yeah. Drink and do drugs. And I think it was my second or third year of college that I really started to think maybe this is a problem. And that's when the pill, the pain pills started to become much more frequent and much more the only thing that I was doing. Um, and just, yeah. I, and, and, you know, but my resume still looked good. I still was doing well in school and I didn't, you know, quote unquote, look like all the other addicts or alcoholics, because I I was a victim of all the stigma too, or or definitely a subscriber to it. Like, well, I'm not passing out behind a dumpster. I'm not homeless. I'm not whatever. I had this very flawed image of what an addict or alcoholic looked like. And so that being the case and my resume being what it was, surely I can't be an addict or alcoholic. Yeah. But the inklings of like, there's a problem here. We're starting to to brew mm-hmm. early on in college. Yeah, when you talk about Michael, the consequences and these brushes with death that we have, and and looking back on it in sobriety and recovery, I shake my head. I have I I've had my own brushes with death drank so much that I literally died from alcohol poisoning. My heart stopped. I wasn't breathing and was somehow revived. Like, I don't remember. I was in a blackout, right? And man, like, I was like a party legend after that. No skin off my back. Like, I'm I'm good, right? Like, I didn't even think twice about drinking again. And so these external consequences that we have, they don't always cause us to reevaluate our substance use. But the internal consequences do. Right. And so you started to talk about some of those, right? That you're starting to have this internal reckoning with your relationship with substances so how does that manifest and ultimately rear its head um well yeah it was just basically i was living in direct opposition to the way i was raised and not living out my beliefs and it created a lot of conflict 
within me. And it just felt like a constant civil war um, of wanting desperately to stop doing what I was doing, but not being able to. And then just that repetitive, like, all right, this is the last time. This is the last time. This is the last time. And it just wears you down and leaves you feeling so hopeless. And you almost just accept like, well, this is just my fate. I'm going to ride this out, you know, to the bitter end, like they talk about in recovery. Right. Um, so yeah, I basically kept doing what I was doing and started having like panic attacks and just severe anxiety. Um, and then that, you know, I self-medicate for that right. or drug. So it's just, it's a vicious cycle. And I was, I was just along for the ride. It felt like, um, and yeah, just kept, kept on with the pills through college and tried to stop my last year and then started drinking like very alcoholically for the, not the first time, but maybe like the most consistent period of my life. Mm-hmm. So then, yeah, I graduate college, like just drink binge drinking every day and, and then doing pills again. Right. Um, wasn't able to stop pills by drinking. Surprise, surprise. I just, <laughs> <laughs> I was just doing both now. Right. Right. And, Michael, you talk about that inner conflict and so many of us can relate to that experience that the person who I am isn't the person I want to be, isn't the person I feel called to be. And I feel increasingly further and further from that person every day. And it causes a lot of internal pain and conflict. And We want to modify our behavior. We want to change our behavior and we try and we fail and it's demoralizing. And then we don't know whether we should just be resigned to the fact that I'm just going to be a drug addict. I'm just going to be an alcoholic because I've tried and I can't quit. And I ran into two revolving, unavoidable truths in my own active alcoholism and addiction, which was, number one, over any period of time, my substance use would become unmanageable. And also, over any length of time, not using substances became unmanageable, too. (laughs) So I was in this rock at a hard place and I didn't know how to get out of it. And it sounds like it's very much where you were at. Yeah, very much so. So I did. uh, I tried the old geographical cure after college. (laughs) (laughs) Uh Living in a new city will help all of this. Um, So I moved to Pittsburgh after graduating from Ohio State and lived there for about a year and a half or two and now i'm just alone doing yeah stuff. and you know before at least there were other people around now it got even worse because i wasn't worried about what other people were thinking at all and it was just me in this house just literally i thought i was going to end up dead if i stayed there for much longer so I decided to move again because it didn't work the first time. Maybe it'll work the second time, you know? 
And that's when I came to Cincinnati in 2014. Michael, you're so right about isolation being the last thing we need as active alcoholics or addicts because it allows us to really use without having to keep up the airs and to keep up this image. The less people that we have to fool, (laughs) the more we can just drink and use to whatever ends we want, right? And it's an incredibly destructive environment to be isolated with our addiction. Yeah, it really is. Okay, so you moved to Cincinnati. What happens next? So I moved in with a couple friends that uh, I had known from high school that had moved down here. And then my brothers were at UC at the time, the University of Cincinnati. So I had some friends and family here and I thought, you know, this will help the cause. But at this point, you know, even though there were people around now, I kept right on doing the same things I was doing because it's a progressive disease, you know. So I'm, yeah, still pretty out of control, but at the same time, still holding down this job and still paying my bills and, and on paper, it looks like my life is working, but I, I don't feel like it is at all on on the inside, but, but that, by that point, like, I don't know another way to live, even though I to live differently. It's like, this is how I knew how to deal with life and deal with emotions and deal with hard things or deal with good days or deal with random days where you're just bored looking for something to do. No matter what it was, like if I was awake, the only thing I knew to do is drink and do drugs. And then the rest was just sort of noise and filler, you know, and I went days doing what I needed to do so that I could continue to drink and do drugs. (laughs) And yeah, so it just, it got worse in Cincinnati. And then, you know, I was driving to, I think by the grace of God and just as a form of protection, I did not know anybody in Cincinnati with pills. So I was driving to and from Columbus like three or four times a week Oh wow! to get pills and, you know, like middle of the night and I mean, even the fact that I never got in a wreck was just amazing and, you know, miracle on top of miracle. But anyway, so it's it's getting bad. And then I'm home for Christmas with my family one year, uh, 2015, and I can't hide it anymore, you know, and they had known in the past that I was messing with stuff and like I said, I was, I was always brushing it off and no, it's cool. I'm fine. I'm going to stop all this. I got it under control. Um, but it was to the point where I could not hide the mood swings and my family knew something was like seriously wrong. And yeah, my mom ended up doing like a solo intervention of sorts before I came back to Cincinnati after, after the holidays. And she basically was like, what the hell is going on with you? Mm -hmm. And I didn't really plan on telling her everything, but something in me just like snapped. And, you know, for a while I had, 
for for a couple months, I something felt like it had gotten unlocked. My my brother had written me a letter just going into detail about how my actions were affecting him and our family and how sad it made him and how scared he was and all this stuff. And it was, I mean, I got home one night from getting pills in Columbus and I read this thing. And even though I was high, like I, I remember crying, which is pretty hard to do um, for anybody that's been on painkillers. Yeah. And yeah, I remember crying that night, reading that letter and that just sort of unlocked something. So then fast forward to this conversation with my mom, she asked me what's going on. And I just, I just told her everything. And she said it felt like she got hit by a freight train after that conversation. Um, but yeah, a week or two later, I was checking into rehab. You know, Michael, I could really relate to that experience of not planning on just laying it all out there, especially when we're used to keeping this thing under wraps, hiding it for years, for decades, for a lot of us. And I, too, when I landed myself in a treatment counselor's office on the back end of a third failed marriage. I was not planning on getting completely honest about the full scale and scope and nature of my alcoholism and addiction. But for some reason I did, it just came out and I, and I view that as an act of providence because I wasn't planning on it. I didn't expect it or anticipate it. But it happened and it was truly the beginning of my recovery. And it sounds like indeed for you, this complete admission that you made to your mom was really the beginning then of your recovery. Yeah, in a lot of ways it was. And, and you know, my, the rest of my family and some friends certainly played a role. Um, but, yeah, this couple months span, it was just I knew I needed help. And it did feel providential that these things were just lining up and these conversations were happening. And, you know, it was almost like, well, here is help. Take it if you want it. And for me, that looked like just spilling my guts and just <laughs> telling my mom everything. And then, yeah, her and my dad helped me find a rehab. And I had known some, you know, some of my friends had ended up in rehab. So I reached out to them and they recommended it a solid place. And, yeah, my, my parents helped me fund rehab. And so, yeah, super grateful for, for my family and friends and just all the second chances I've been given. So it starts with this self-honesty that you displayed with your mom. And it really sounds like it was a culmination of you just being sick and tired of living the way you were living. Yeah. And... Lying and hiding and all of that, that Jekyll and Hyde life right. that so many of us can relate to and have lived for so long and just tired of it and desperately wanting to stop running from it and to change. Yeah. Yeah. But unfortunately, even though I really wanted to stay sober when I got out of rehab, I did not. So that was not the end of my drinking and using. 
Uh, tell me what happened. So you get into rehab and uh, it's a good rehab. Good ex- was, the, was the rehab experience itself good? Yeah. I had, yeah, I had a great experience there <clears throat> and met, <clears throat> met some really great people. Um, and yeah, I have not one bad thing to say really about my experience in rehab. But it was only 21 days long. Sure. So, you know, I had been drinking and drugging for 12 right. years at that point. So 21 days and then back into the real world. Like, it's just I, I wanted to stay sober, but I didn't know how to execute that. Yeah. In the world. Yeah. So I got got out, came back to Cincinnati. And, you know, I was fortunate enough to move to a new apartment and um to be welcomed back to my job. Um, and just, you know, they talk about people, places, things. I was able to switch a lot of that stuff up, um, which I'm super grateful for because I know that that's not the case for everybody. Yeah. Which makes it, you know, exponentially more difficult. Because it was, it was hard enough for me. And I think I lasted maybe like 19 days after rehab. So I had about 40 days clean. And then it was just like, you know what? I think I'm going to get some pills because I can't stop thinking about them. I hear that sometimes relapse is a part of recovery. (laughs) Citing passages in the recovery literature, trying to justify what I was about to do. Love it. And then, yeah, I went and got some pills and then I was like, well, I might as well drink too. And so I did. And then the next four or five months maybe were, Basically, I would stay sober for maybe like three days, maybe seven. I think 12 was like the longest. And then I would go on like a mini bender a couple sure. of days, maybe just one day. Um, but yeah, like I said, my my sobriety date is July 8th, 2016. And I got out of rehab February, uh, end of February. So a few months and man, it was, I thought it was bad before I went to rehab. It was so much worse when I kept <laughs> doing the same crap I was doing before. Cause now I got all this like, and you know, all this recovery jargon going on in my you head. Bet. Just you bet. The already civil war that's going on. Now it's you like, there's between like three or four different parties and you know, just the lies start all over again. And it just, it got worse than I thought it could could get. Well, we learn a lot about addiction and ourselves and the process of addiction when we have a treatment or rehab experience and we're attending recovery meetings. We're really getting an education about the true nature of this disease. So the old saying that a head full of recovery and a body full of drugs or alcohol don't (laughs) mix that well certainly (laughs) is the case. Yeah, goodness. It really does provide for a tumultuous experience because we really can't deny that at that point, right, that we're addicts or alcoholics often at that point, right? But we continue to use addictively and alcoholically, whatever the case may be. And it's um, it's a pretty awful experience coming out of that for many of us 
after our first stint in sobriety. So how does this culminate? Well, I meet a girl um, who doesn't drink or do drugs, super solid um, person, and I, I fall really hard for her. This So this is like April, May time frame. So a month or two out of rehab, but while I'm still relapsing. And, you know, I'm super honest with her about my past, but I am a little fuzzy on the present. I sure. <laughs> definitely mentioned that I'm still doing drugs and drinking. Um, but anyway, so yeah, this is, it's going pretty well, I think. And I'm starting to see just like what the possibilities might be if I stick to the recovery path. Um, because I want to get married, you know, at this point and here's a prime candidate and I'm starting to see like, you know, if I keep drinking and doing drugs, this relationship has no chance of working out. And for some reason that was a powerful enough motivator for me to take another look at my recovery because, you know, I said I wanted to stay sober, but I really wasn't taking it as seriously as I needed to. So that was one factor. And then, you know, the first time I relapsed, I told my parents what happened, told my family, and that was brutal you know, after they paid for me to go to rehab, all this stuff, here I am just like basically spitting in their face is, is how I imagine it felt for them. Um, and then I stopped telling them because I was like, that sucked. And I don't want to keep doing that every time I drink or do drugs. And, you know, a couple months later, though, I just, again, I didn't intend to, but it just, I just got super honest with my family. And told them that basically I had continued to drink and do drugs just at a lesser frequency. So not wanting to my family to disown me or, you know, not wanting to just put them through any more hell, not wanting this relationship to fail caused me to start going about my recovery a little differently. So I, I, you know, did the 90 meetings in 90 days and I just back to something you said earlier, I just started doing what people told me to do. I tried to take myself out of it as much as I could because I, my ideas were not panning out. My ideas were not helping me or anybody around me and they certainly weren't keeping me sober. So I was just looking around and I was like, all right, these people are staying sober. What are they doing? What are they telling me to do? How about I just do that? Regardless of how I feel, regardless of what I think about it, I'm just going to I'm just going to do what these people did to get where they are because I want what they have. Man, I love that. And I always say any reason is a good reason to get into recovery. Any reason is a good reason to get back into recovery. And they always say you got to do it for yourself and ultimately I really believe that's true in the long run, but if we start recovery because of somebody that we care about. If we get back into recovery because we don't want to lose somebody or something that we care about, that's a good reason. And it can indeed be the beginning of a beautiful recovery. Look, I got into recovery this last time eight plus years ago because I didn't want to get divorced. Mm -hmm. Now, it really rapidly turned into, I want to be sober for me. 
but that ain't why I started. Yeah. I mean, that was the same as my experience. You know, at first I couldn't do it for myself. I don't think I was able to care about myself enough at that point to do it for myself, but my family and this relationship were enough to get me to like a month or two. And at that point, the relationship ended up not working out, but I had enough time to where I was able to want to do it for myself now too. And that's beautiful. And I love that. And similarly, I still got divorced, but by that time I wanted this thing more than anything else in my life. Like I had started to really experience some amazing benefits from running this experiment. And it sounds like that's very much what you did, Michael. You just started running this experiment. Take yourself out of it. Don't worry about the process. I'm just going to do this thing to the best of my ability and see what happens. Yeah. And it's it's interesting looking back because I don't remember when, you know, that mental switch or whatever kind of switch happened. But it just happened. One day I was wanting to stay sober for myself. But I couldn't tell you the day or the time that right. happened. But yeah, right. just day at a time, doing the work in the program, doing, you know, embracing the process. And it, you know, it just something, something clicks, something starts happening, something starts changing. I love that. Well, we start changing, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And that's where the magic happens is when we start changing mm. in these really fundamental and profound ways. And then what we're putting out into the world is fundamentally different. And so then what we're getting back is fundamentally different. <laughs> and it changes freaking everything. Yeah. And it continues to change, which is yeah. super exciting and just a fun adventure to be to be on. Indeed, Michael. Indeed. So at what point in your recovery journey does it become clear to you that you need to write clean the misadventures of an alcoholic drug addict? Um, I had started and stopped several drafts of what I hoped would become a book ever since I graduated college in 2012 and always ended up stopping for some reason or another. Um, but in 2020 timeframe, I just felt this really strong pull to start writing again. And a couple years prior, one of my best friends passed away from an overdose Oh man! while, while I was in recovery. So yeah, I mean, I've, life doesn't stop happening just because you, you get so you got it. I've been through some, some really difficult things sober, but by the grace of God, I came out the other side still sober, um, which yeah, still just is mind blowing to me sometimes. But anyway, so I wanted to find a way to just honor his memory and keep keep it alive somehow. And it just really gave me a new spark and a reason for why I wanted to write my story. Um, so yeah, 2020, uh, you know, COVID's in full swing. So I had plenty of time on my hands and yeah knocked this thing out in a couple months and started the publication process. And that took almost a year and 
yeah, Clean was released November of 2021. That's really amazing that you were able to really fulfill this almost lifelong desire to write this book. And it sounds like it really crystallized for you in recovery. And it also sounds like, Michael, like this book just needed to get written. And I can relate to that. That's why this podcast exists, just because I could no longer ignore my higher power being like, you need to do this. You just need to do this. You just have to. And so it sounds like a similar experience in terms of your book. Yeah, definitely. And what a great way to honor the friend that you lost, an experience that far too many of us have had to experience over the last decade plus an overdose. And it is far too common. And uh, every time it happens in our community, you know, it's a it's a really stark reminder of the stakes of this disease and whether it's alcoholism and you're dying on the installment program or whether it's something else and it can be rather sudden because a lot of these overdoses are actually poisonings yeah that's the real part about that thing is that you know the stuff is poisoned and uh, you don't know what you're taking. That is a very real and very scary part of it. Yeah, I know. I was, that was one of the reasons why I, th- I think I loved pills so much back in the day. It was because I, I didn't know what I was getting. But now, I'm, and even then, probably, too, like you, you just don't know. And that's what it's so scary. And that could have happened to me countless times. And yeah, I don't. I don't know why some people make it and some people don't, but it's, yeah, it's heartbreaking and it's everywhere and it's far too common. And, but yeah, you know, you still see a lot of stigmas around it and I think we've come a long way, but um, yeah, we we still have a a long way to go. No doubt about it. It's hard not to have a little survivor's guilt for us that are in recovery, right, Michael? I mean, how many times have I, drank to oblivion and drove and by some stroke of luck, some act of providence, some freaking miracle, I didn't kill myself or others. And others weren't so lucky. By some miracle, I survived alcohol poisoning. Others weren't so lucky. And when our brothers and sisters do fall. It's hard not to have a little survivor's guilt around that. It is. Yeah, I think that just, you know, also further motivates me to keep keep pushing my story and just keep living living my recovery. You know, not just talking about it, but like walking it out each day to the best of my ability. You got it. Recovering out loud and being the best examples of recovery we can be. And like you, like I am nowhere near perfect. 
I have my bad days. Life gets lifey. Bad stuff happens. Hard stuff happens. Stuff that's way out of my control happens. And I have to lean into those recovery principles, letting go and using my higher power and turning my attention to folks I can help. And all of that is imperfect. But if I can more often than not be a good example of recovery and choose to recover out loud, then I have a chance to help some people. Yeah. Amen. Michael, one last question before we get into our closing questions. What do you hope folks get out of reading clean the misadventures of an alcoholic drug addict? Well, I hope that they come to understand addiction a little more, which isn't to say that I understand it perfectly. I'm still learning myself, Um, but there are a lot of stigmas around it. So I hope that people walk away with a little bit different of an understanding of addiction. I also hope that people reading it um, are reminded or maybe learn for the first time that there is hope, even if there seems to be no hope anywhere. Um, People are getting and staying sober and it is possible. There is always hope. I love that. A message that we say often on the Way Out podcast, recovery is not just possible, it's absolutely worth it. Yeah, 100%. Can't imagine living any other way. Michael, are you ready for our closing questions? Yeah, let's do it. What does your daily or regular recovery routine consist of? Um, well, I do a lot of writing, um, journaling, that kind of thing. Um, exercise is a big part of it. I don't go to that many traditional recovery meetings anymore, but I'm pretty involved in my local church and I'm in some small community groups um, through that. So just have, yeah, a couple different groups are really solid friends that we just do life together. We meet once a week, um, a couple times a week and just get real about what we're struggling with, what's going on. We share each other's stories. We encourage each other, pray for each other and just, do life together um get you know hang out with my family a lot and just really i'm prone to isolation so anyway can come against that and lean into the the community that i have um is a big part of my recovery i love that michael i heard connection in there i heard spirituality in there i heard physical activity in there i heard writing in there I introduced journaling into my daily practice a couple of years ago, and it's been transformational in my recovery. And I keep doing that. My recovery evolves as I have the amazing opportunity to be able to learn from folks in recovery just like you. And you know, I try these things, and sometimes they stick, and that's definitely one of them. Physical activity is huge. I'm yeah a tireless advocate of daily physical activity in recovery for two reasons. Number one, 
as we talked about earlier, boredom's real, filling the void is real. Our substance use took a lot of time. When that is eliminated, we got to fill our time with something. And regular physical activity is a tremendous way to be able to fill some time, get some of those feel-good endorphins, and do some physical self-care. But there's an emotional benefit to it. There's a mental benefit to it. There's a spiritual benefit to it. So that regular physical activity is huge. Yeah, I agree. Michael, what book or piece of recovery literature or quit lit, as the cool kids call it, had the biggest impact on your recovery? Mm. Probably the big book, honestly. Mm. I remember reading that the first time and just flying through it because I just couldn't get enough of how much it felt like my story. And then you get to the stories in the back and in that, yeah. and you know, driven home more. So yeah, I, I would, I would say the big book was the most impactful for me. Man after my own heart, Michael, I too am one that believes that the big book is still to this day, the single most impactful and important piece of quitlet that exists. Mm. It changed me. It changed me. Michael, what is the best piece of advice you've received in recovery thus far? Mm. I think embracing the process is probably up there because, you know, perfectionists like me, I wanted to do it all at once. I don't want to halfway do anything. So if I'm in recovery, I want to be all the way recovered. on yeah. day one. And that's just not how it works, obviously. And, you know, I'm still uncovering things and feels like the longer I'm in recovery, the more I realize how selfish and prideful I am and just, you know, just have a, a long way to go. So, just embracing the ride and trying to enjoy the journey and um, being present and just grateful for where I am. You know, as cliche as all this stuff sounds, it it really is powerful and cliche for a reason, you know, but yeah, just trying to take it one day at a time. Yeah. I love that. And really embodying the truth that recovery is a journey and a process and It's not an instant cure and then we're, you know, relieved and we never have to do anything. It is a one day at a time process and journey. And to your point, we're constantly changing and evolving if we're continuing to do the work and continuing to lead into recovery, right? Right. Michael, what is the greatest challenge you've had in recovery thus far? Hmm. I think it, I'm tempted to say one of the bigger things, like my, you know, one of my best friends passing away or relationships not working out, but I don't even know if that's true because I remember days when, you know, for example, I couldn't get the drawer underneath the oven closed when I was trying to cook a meal and that just 
about drove me to relapse. So <laughs> I think just managing and feeling my feelings on a day-to-day basis, you know, whether something big and like tragic is going on or just the day-to-day mundane nature of life and just really learning how to not numb out and run away from my feelings. Mm, Man, that's real. And I can really relate to that. And no doubt many, many others can. The ankle biter problems and annoyances and things in life that can trigger us and cause us to want to hit that eject button. Yeah. And I love the example of the oven drawer, like just sending you into a fit. Like I can relate to that. You know, I'm susceptible to that still to this day, almost nine years in recovery, something can, and and I have to really stop and pause and be like, okay, this is okay. And how did I get from zero to 999 here? <laughs> yeah. Right. And, yeah. and all of a sudden what have this crazy urge to want to, you know, eliminate the uncomfortable feeling. Right. Right. Super real. Love it. What is your greatest success in recovery thus far, Michael? Um, I would say writing a book was, yeah. was up there for sure. And uh, yeah, book number two coming out soon feels super, super special. And I'm really excited about that. Um, yeah. I would say that's a tremendous success. Writing a book is no small feat. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Michael, the next one's a doozy, and then we end with a fun one. Okay. What is something you haven't forgiven yourself or someone else for? Mm. Well, I, I, it took me a long time to, to not blame myself for my best friend's passing who I've mentioned a, f- a couple of times now, um, you know, we were always like partners in crime, so to speak. And just for many years and I can't help but wonder like if I had done more or done something differently, like would the outcome have been any different? And it took me a long time to forgive myself and to, um, get past that place. And there are still times when, you know, a little twinge of guilt will hit me Mm. um, today, but I don't know that I would say I haven't forgiven myself because I I think I am forgiven for that. And I don't know that walking around in shame or, you know, just all the negative emotions that come with that are going to serve me or anybody in my life that well um but yeah it was definitely a speaking of processes it was definitely a process and um still i have to remind myself or like re-forgive myself when these when these thoughts and feelings start to come up still to this day yeah and i could really relate to that we don't have to have 
things in our lives that we don't forgive others or ourselves for. I don't. But it's also a very real experience in recovery, which is why we ask it, because we can be all different places on that journey of self-forgiveness and forgiveness of others. And to your point, I sit here today and there's nothing. But that's a result of intentional practice every morning. I shed those resentments and I practice self-forgiveness and forgiveness of others. And still, to your point, every now and again, something will come up. And I'll get that little twinge. And that's a sign that I need to revisit that. And I need to lead into, again, my forgiveness practice on that specific issue. And that's just the way it's going to be for the rest of my life. (laughs) You know? (laughs) Yeah, well said. Michael, here's the fun one. What song symbolizes recovery to you? Oh man, um, I don't know if this is if I'm gonna be happy with this answer <laughs> down the road. But the song that's coming to mind right now is "Symphonies" by uh, Kid Cudi and Dan Black. For some reason, that song just does something to me and just reminds me that there is more. And um, yeah, it just it makes me feel hopeful that's great for a couple of reasons number one i've never heard of that song in my entire life so that's (laughs) new to me i love that i love learning about new music and experiencing new music and it's a first on the way out podcast as a song recommendation so that's tremendous as well so check the show notes right now and you will find a handy link for symphonies by kid cuddy and dan black you'll also find Michael's best piece of recovery advice, as well as his quit lit recommendation and handy contact info for Michael and a great link to check out his new book, Clean the Misadventures of an Alcoholic Drug Addict. Michael, brother, thank you so much for taking time to share your journey to end through recovery with us. This has been absolutely fantastic. Yeah, thank you, Charles. This has been great. And uh, yeah, I really appreciate it. And thank you, everybody out there in Way Out Podcast land for your ears. We will talk to you next time. Thank you for being a part of The Way Out. We appreciate your ears. We're sharing powerful recovery stories and recovery power topics every week. So keep listening up. If you would like to reach out to the show, you can visit us on the web at wayoutcast.com. That's wayoutcast, all one word, dot com. There you can subscribe to the Way Out podcast on all of the major podcast aggregators, such as iTunes, CastBox, Stitcher, TuneIn, Podbean, Overcast, and more. Or simply drop your hosts a friendly email at share at wayoutcast.com. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the show, contact us at share at wayoutcast.com. See you next time. And remember, if you don't change, your sobriety date will.